Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast, friends. Good to have you here. My name is Grant Baldwin, and I am excited for you to tune into this episode. Today, we're going to be uh, sharing a conversation I had with Stanford Business School lecturer, professional speaker, Matt Abrahams. Now, Matt spends his day speaking and teaching people how to become communication experts through practical tips and uh, even some biohacking habits. And so today, Matt and I uh, dug into the content that he shares with everyone from business leaders to students to sales teams to help them build confidence both on and off the stage. Now, this episode is not our usual speaker journey, but there's so much value Matt has to share in regard to framing the physiological symptoms of speaking, his thoughts on filler words, um, uh, uh, those sorts of things, uh, and also how to guide your audience through a successful Q&A session. So if you're looking to master the soft skills that go into creating confidence as a speaker, this episode is exactly what you need. So let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with Matt Abrahams. Enjoy. Hey friends, Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Good to have you here with us today. Today, joined by Matt Abrahams, and going to be excited to be talking about uh, all things speaking, how to overcome maybe some fears that you may have. Talk about some uh, spontaneous uh, speaking that you may run into from time to time. Uh, so we got a lot to cover today. So Matt, thanks for joining us. Thrilled to be here, Grant. I look forward to our conversation. Well, first of all, maybe just kind of set the stage for us, give us some context. Uh, I know speaking is, is a part of your profession, part of your world, but in kind of a different context. So a lot of times the speakers that we work with, we talk with are full-time speakers. I know you do a lot of outside speaking as well, but you also teach speaking in more of a, yeah. a formal education type uh, setting. So give us some context of, of what it is that you do. Yeah, so I am a lecturer at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. I teach strategic communication. I've been doing that for about 13 years. And all along the time, the way I've been coaching communication, coaching speakers for high stakes situations, as well as spontaneous situations. So I'm somebody who lives and breathes communication. Now, you also do some speaking yourself outside yeah. in terms of like speaking at conferences, events. Uh, how, how does that kind of fit into your, your business? How much are you doing the on the academic side? How much are you doing your own speaking? How does that all work together? It's hard to say in terms of percentages of my time. To me, it's all the it's all really the same thing. I'm talking about the same topic. I love engaging large audiences at events. It's a lot of fun to to see people who can apply the things I'm talking about right away, who are living some of the issues and challenges I talk about. But I also love being in the academic realm where I can look at new research and apply it in the classroom and, and help my students improve and hone their communication. So I, I love dabbling in in consulting and teaching and as well as speaking. Very cool. Now, uh, a lot you mentioned like a, a lot of the environments that you help speakers with is more of like a high stakes type of environment. Well, like what type of settings would those typically be in? 
Uh, you name it. Uh, I, I just yesterday was helping somebody uh, prepare for some pretty intense Q&A about a, a project that they've got going on. I've helped Nobel laureates with uh, Nobel Prize speeches. I've helped people give TED Talks, uh, presentations at Davos, but also sales teams uh, figuring out how to message the what it is they're trying to get across, as well as organizations as they change direction or acquire others. So you name it, uh, I work on it and I love it. I love uh, applying the, the things that I study to lots of different venues and lots of different types of people. And so maybe to, to kick us off here, so let's say someone comes to you and they're working on uh, some new speech, some new presentation, and maybe it's some material maybe they've done before and they're familiar with some stuff maybe that's kind of new that they haven't necessarily tested on an audience yet. Uh, and so walk us through, like, what's the process, some of the, the, the system that you might teach uh, a speaker in that type of context? Well, so if you are a confident speaker already, I would start by first uh, reminding people of a very different process. If you're bringing a product or a service to a market, uh, one of the things we teach at Stanford's Graduate School of Business and many other places teach it is this notion of minimally viable product design. And minimally viable product design says that when you want to create a new product or service, the very first thing you do is you go out and you talk to your users and understand what are their pain points, what are their issues, what are their challenges, and then you build frameworks to test it. So you, you get out and you're rapidly prototyping ideas, you're taking feedback, you're iterating. So if you uh, want to open a bakery, you don't start by baking wedding cakes, you start by baking mini cupcakes, and then you get feedback and then gradually you grow and grow to cupcakes, bigger cakes, wedding cakes. The same process applies to communication. You need to be rapidly prototyping everything you do, your messaging. So you start by understanding your topic, and then how does your topic apply to your audience? What are their issues and challenges related to the topic? You then craft messages and test them with members of the audience, people who know the audience, others who you trust, and you iterate. So the first time you deliver your message should not be after you've crafted it completely. You should be iterating throughout. So the process starts with understanding your audience, drafting your message, testing it, and then coming back and iterating. And so what type of context would we would be best suited for testing different types of material? So if you're if you're an invited speaker to an event, I would be talking to the people who invited you and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking of talking about. How will this resonate? If you know people who are like the people who will be in the audience, run it by them. You, you want to be testing with as broad an audience as you can. Your goal as a communicator is not to get through your material. It's to connect that material to your audience so that they take value from it. And the only way to do that is to spend time really thinking about and connecting to your audience. So one of the things we talk a lot about here on the show is that whenever you're creating uh, a new presentation or new material, you're, you're making an educated guess. You know, I think this is funny. I think this will resonate. I think this will make sense. But you don't ultimately know until you get up in front of that live audience. So how important is it to do it in a, a live setting or to present the material in a live setting versus, let's say, presenting an idea on social media or on a YouTube video or on a Facebook Live or some type of maybe different medium or maybe not, you don't necessarily get, you may get some form of feedback, but it may not be the real-time feedback that you get from speaking. Do those platforms or mediums work for testing and prototyping material? I think they do, but I don't think they are in, they, you do them instead of actually getting up. You can do them in addition to. I think it is critical to get up in the environment you're speaking in front of people who are like the people you will speak in front of. Nothing beats actual practice in that environment with that content to see how people will respond. 
Now, ultimately, like, again, we're, we're, when you're standing in front of that audience, like you, you're trying to make some assumptions of, is this working? Is this not working? And some of that just comes through repetition and getting experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, the more times you speak, the more you have a better feel of this works or this doesn't work. If you're, let's say, a newer speaker and you're testing some material and you're just trying to get a gauge of, I'm not entirely sure this is working. I'm laughing. I'm engaged. I'm entertained, but I don't. I can't necessarily tell if the audience is like. What would be the cues or things that we'd be looking for within an audience to know whether or not something's landing or not? Yeah. So I I, I want to answer that question. I also want to share some ways to help engage with an audience. So you're looking for patterns uh, among audience members. Any one audience member is probably not as informative as trends across. So if you tell a joke and multiple people don't laugh, then you might want to think about that joke or or reframing it. If you use an analogy and it doesn't seem to land, you see lots of inquisitive looks or people turning to each other or their phones even, that's information for you. So look for patterns across multiple people. I encourage new speakers to come up with multiple ways of accomplishing certain engagement techniques. So you might try a joke, you might try an analogy, you might try a poll, There are lots of different tools you can use to engage your audience and have several different versions of it and test the different versions to see what will work best. Fundamentally, when you're engaging an audience, I think you have three levers to pull. The first lever is physical engagement. Get them doing something, raising their hand. If you're virtual, typing into the chat, going into a breakout room, show people something to watch or to look at. That's physical engagement because where their bodies go, their minds will follow. Second is mental engagement. And you do this through asking questions, using analogies, telling stories. That's what engages your audience mentally. And then linguistic engagement through the words you use. You can be funny. You can use connecting language like people's names or the words you and us. Or you can use what I call time traveling language. You can take people into the future or the past. I can say, picture this. Imagine what it would be like if. What if we could? All of that language has you envision something and takes you into the future of what's possible. Or I can take you into the past, say, remember when or think back to when. So through physical, mental, and linguistic engagement, you get the audience involved, and then you can look for those patterns across your audience to see if that engagement is working or not. Whenever you are working on something, let's say, and you're thinking through the the physical elements of how you might engage with an audience. Now, again, we're we're talking in the context of speaking in person and getting someone to raise their hand or stand up or move around the room, whatever it may be. How do you find what that right balance is where uh, we're we're doing something to keep people engaged, but it doesn't feel like it's it's over the top or it's too much or because there is that what becomes this kind of fine line where it becomes hokey or corny or you start to kind of lose some of the engagement and trust with the audience and some of maybe the, the physical interactions that you are looking for starts to work against you as the speaker. Uh, so how do you find what that right balance is? I wish I had an answer. And I just said, do, do three of these and four of those and you're done. It really, really depends. It frustrates my students when I answer questions like this with it depends. I love that you're actually thinking about that. A lot of people don't. I would say in my many, many years of teaching people how to be better speakers, that that people often do too little engagement and not too much engagement. When I have seen people do too much engagement, they're trying too hard, Yeah. right? So if you think about a presentation as a journey that you're taking your audience on, 
at various points in the journey, you get a sense of where the rhythm and involvement is and where you see those dips in involvement or the, the places it mellows out a little bit. That's where I would encourage people to put some engagement techniques where people are already involved, engaged and connected. Adding engagement techniques at those points can feel like they are too much. So it's looking holistically across the journey you take your audience on and really thinking about strategically, where can I put those engagement points to enliven what I'm saying and, and not just do it like peanut butter and spread them all across, do it very strategically. Right. And a lot of the speakers that are, you know, are tuned in right now, listening in are going to be either full-time speakers working toward becoming full-time speakers. So one thing we talk a lot about is the importance of not just giving one talk and then never giving that again, but, but giving that talk and getting that feedback and refining it time and time and time and time again. So each time you're telling that story or you're telling that anecdote or that bit or that illustration or analogy, whatever it may be, you're getting the real-time feedback that makes it better each time you deliver it. And so it's not like the first time that you've presented it, but it's actually ideally, you know, the 10th or 50th or 100th time. And you know that that you've got that story really, really, really well dialed in and it becomes this well-oiled machine in terms of, of how you're delivering it. Absolutely. Yeah. For the book I wrote, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, I interviewed several comedians. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm interested in the book about spontaneous speaking when you're in the moment and you have to come up with something spontaneously. So I was talking to these comedians about hecklers, right? Mm -hmm. Hecklers who disrupt your flow and then you have to respond. But really what I learned, in addition to how they handle hecklers and that spontaneous speaking, is the amount of preparation stand-up comedians go through. You know, these jokes seem like they're just coming up with them off the fly, but they are doing exactly what you talked about. They are honing and refining and repeating and testing repeatedly to get them to a place where it feels natural and comfortable and seems natural and comfortable. There's a uh, we've talked about this uh, on the show before, but there's a, a great documentary from several years ago called Comedian uh, with Jerry Seinfeld. And the, yeah. the, the premise, have, have you seen it? Uh, it's I a, have. And it's amazing. It's phenomenal. Uh, and the premise is basically like you think of Jerry Seinfeld as this amazing stand up comic, which he is. But it's also shows him kind of behind the scenes of he's preparing for this new stand up special. And, and we see the finished product. We see the special on, you know, Netflix, HBO, whatever it may be, and assume that, well, he just got up there and told some jokes and it all just came together. But the reality is, right. is there's so much testing and preparation behind the scenes that went into that. So by the time he gets up there, it looks natural. It looks like it's off the cuff, but really there's an enormous amount of work that went into that, the preparation of that. So from that standpoint, how do you best balance the, I want to be prepared. I want to know what I'm going to say, but I also want to be fully engaged because the audience can tell the difference between someone who's just delivering us a, a monologue and a speech. And it's just this regurgitating a script off the top of their head versus someone who's, who's present and in the moment. So how do you strike that right balance? Yeah, absolutely. And that's really at the crux of the, of the think faster, talk smarter methodology. It's how can you be present and connect, but also prepared so you can take your audience where you think they best need to be. And it really boils down to two things, mindset and messaging. So many of us, when we communicate, we want to do it right. We want to do it well. And that pressure we put on ourselves to be per perfect for perfection really inhibits the ability to be present and agile in the moment. So what I encourage people to do is one, recognize that we're putting a lot of pressure on ourselves to get it right. And we want to turn that volume down. I'm certainly not saying we should not evaluate our communication and judge it. We should. But we can turn the volume down a little bit on that. And when we do, that gives us more literally cognitive bandwidth to connect 
to our audience, to be present, to notice what's happening so we can adjust and adapt. So I like to say it's about connection, not perfection. So you should put your focus on the value you bring to the audience in the moment rather than am I saying every word the best right way that I can. And the way you get yourself comfortable with that is through practice. Don't script your your presentations word for word. Use bullet point lists or better yet, use what I call question-based outlines. A question-based outline is simply key questions that you can ask yourself. And in answering them, they give you the material that you need to get through. So if you ever look at any of my lecture notes or when I do a keynote, you will simply see a list of questions that I am answering. I know the answers to the questions. And the benefit of this is threefold. One, it stops you from memorizing, which means you can be more focused. You have more cognitive bandwidth to focus. Two, it makes it more conversational because we answer questions differently than we present. And three, it makes me audience focused because when I'm answering your question, even if I asked it myself, then I am in service of you. So first part of it, is to get rid of that perfection mindset and adopt a connection mindset. And then the second part is messaging. We have to structure our messages. Um, Structure to me is just a logical connection of ideas. It gives you a roadmap. It's hard to get lost if you have a roadmap. So have a high level structure. If you're selling something, you might use problem, solution, benefit. You talk about the problem that exists. Here's how we're solving it. Here's the benefit of doing so. That's your roadmap. You don't memorize every word of the problem, every word of the solution. You just have general questions or bullet points you want to cover, but you know that structure. And there are many, many other structures you could use to help get your point across. So through messaging and through mindset changes, you can do exactly what you were talking about, which is being present but having direction to where you're going. So whenever you talk about your mindset and kind of turning down the volume on the, uh, maybe the, the, the noise or kind of the distractions that you may have in your head, are there any other practical ways that we can go about doing that to help ease some of the nerves? This is, you know, one thing that's obviously very common yeah. and associated with speaking is speaking is one of the uh, people's greatest fears. And so it's similar to, you know, if someone's scared of heights, the idea yeah. of like, well, turn down, you know, the voice in your head that's saying, don't be scared yeah. of heights, you know, it's not that bad. Uh, so yeah. what can we do to minimize some of that fear, overcome some of those uh, insecurities or doubts yeah. that we may have about speaking? Absolutely. The first book I wrote called Speaking Up Without Freaking Out is all based on how to manage anxiety. And there are many, many tools to help people. The book goes over 50 academically verified techniques. Really, again, it boils down to two things, symptoms and sources. We have to manage both our symptoms, but also the sources of anxiety. So let me give you a couple examples of both. Single best thing you can do to calm your body down is deep belly breaths, the kind you would do if you've ever done yoga or Tai Chi. The key to the breathing is that you want your exhale to last longer than your inhale, twice as long. So if I take a three count in, really distend my belly, I take a six count out, will tremendously help you by slowing down your autonomic nervous system. Additionally, there are things you can do for those of us who get, uh, we blush and we perspire when we get nervous, that's because your core body temperature is going up. Your heart's beating faster, your body's constricting, you've got more blood going through tighter tubes. That's what increases your blood pressure and makes you sweat and get hotter, just like when you exercise. So we need to cool ourselves down. Real simple hack for this. Hold something cold in the palms of your hand. The palms of your hand are thermoregulators for your body, just like your forehead or the back of your neck. If you've ever had a fever and you put a cold compress on your head, 
you hold something cold and it will reduce your core body temperature. We've done this in reverse on a cold day. If you've ever held a warm cup of coffee or tea and it warmed you up, Mm -hmm. we're just doing it in reverse. So those are some of the things you can do for the physical symptoms. In terms of the sources, the things that initiate and exacerbate anxiety, beyond getting out of this perfection mindset like I talked about, if you can help yourself get present oriented and focus on the good that you offer your audience, that will take care of the negative self-talk. Many of us, before we speak, we say, oh, how'd I get myself into this? Or I, I should have prepared more. Or these folks look really scary. We're saying all these negative things to ourselves. If we can remind ourselves that we're in service of our audience, we have value to bring. As a professional speaker, somebody determined that you have something of value to say to this audience. And if you remind yourself of that, it will turn down all of that negative self-talk and really help you focus in the moment. So there are many, many things we can do to deal with symptoms and sources that can not only help us feel more confident, but appear more confident. Very cool. I, I'd never considered the uh, putting something cold uh, in your hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or to, yeah, I, that- before this call. Before this call, I was holding something so I wasn't perspiring and sweating as I spoke with you. Very interesting. I'd never considered that. That's that's cool. Uh, okay, let's let's shift gears for a second. When, when we talk about like uh, nerves, anxiety, fear, sometimes those can often or oftentimes they can be really just confused with just excitement or adrenaline yeah. of the moment. Uh-huh. So it's not necessarily like I'm terrified that the audience is going to turn on me or they're going to hate me or, or whatever may happen, but I'm just, I'm excited. And so we think about like other key moments in life where we felt something similar and had similar feelings. So, you know, if you were in a big job interview or when you proposed to your spouse or when a child was born or some big moment in life, you had a lot yeah. of the same adrenaline type of feeling. So how do we determine like what's just excitement and adrenaline of the moment versus what is what is like real nerves and anxiety that we, we really got to address and deal with? I love that you're bringing that, that up because that's research done by my friend and colleague, Allison Woods Brooks. She teaches at Harvard Business School and she's a fantastic person. I had her on my podcast and we, we talked specifically about this issue. So the physiological symptoms, your, your body has just one arousal process, uh, regardless of if it's about excitement or anxiety, threat. Uh, the same things happen. You know, if if I say, hey, Grant, you won the lottery, your heart would start beating faster. You, your body would heat up a little bit. You might get a little shaky and you're really excited about that. But if I said, hey, Grant, you know what? Somebody got sick. I need you to step out on stage in 10 minutes. Heart rate would go up. You'd get a little shaky. You'd start perspiring. Same thing. And you would label one positive, one negative. So our hmm. mind and the way we label things has a tremendous impact on how we experience them. So if you can remind yourself of the things that get you excited about what you're speaking on. And if you can remind yourself of the potential value that the audience has to take from what you're saying, those are things that can get you excited. And you can begin to remind yourself that, hey, a beating heart rate, a faster heart rate means I'm pumped, I'm ready to go. That shakiness, that's that energy to jump right into what I'm doing. So by simply telling yourself what you're doing is exciting can help you not only reduce anxiety, but help you focus better and bring the energy you need to get your point across. So take a moment to remind yourself of what excites you about your topic and what excites you for the information you're going to give to your audience. Big, big difference and lots of really cool research that Allison and others have done on this topic. 
Very cool. I always remind speakers, like you, you think about uh, professional athletes or musicians or performers, yeah. and they feel those same feelings. If you're getting ready to play well, in a major yeah. game or a, a, a Super Bowl or whatever it may be, you you have that same adrenaline, I would assume. I've never played in a Super Bowl, but it's not because <laughs> like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous or I'm scared. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. No, no, you're a professional. You've trained for this moment. But that adrenaline of the moment, the excitement is what is pumping through your veins at that time. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I remind people who I coach, I ask them, have you ever performed music or acting or dancing in front of others or ever done a sport? And many people say yes at some point. And I said, how did you how did you handle those nerves, those jitters that you had? And people had practices, you know, players, athletes will talk about what they do before they take the field or court. Musicians or actors will talk about what they do to manage their anxiety. We just don't connect that with the physical experience that we're having when we speak, but the same techniques will work. Mm, very true. Uh, whenever you are preparing a talk or you're delivering a talk, one thing that there's kind of different schools of thought on is it relates to filler words, the ums, the uhs, the, that sort of thing. And, and some speakers yeah, are okay with it. Some are like, no, no, you should never have any of those. You know, Toastmasters is obviously very adamant on don't have any of those and cut all that out. I'm personally, I tend to be okay with some of it because uh, I think that it's a, it's a good reminder that you are a human talking to a collection of humans. So act like a human. The, the more polished it becomes, the almost less believable you are. So what's your viewpoint on how to make sure that again, we're, we, we have the, we're saying the right things. Maybe we have some filler words in there, but uh, it's not something where it becomes over the top where it's no longer believable. So uh, I interviewed a woman on Think Fast, Talk Smart, my, my podcast named uh, Valerie Friedland, and she's a neurolinguist and she studies language. And she convinced me because for years I thought that filler words could be distracting and that we should not eliminate. I, I fall into the camp you have where, where we should just try to reduce them. So the goal was just not have any that are distracting. She actually convinced me that there's a lot of value filler words provide for us. They, they actually serve purposes and that's why we have them. Uh, so it's one thing to to recognize the value that they provide. And then it's another thing to help yourself realize that your job when you communicate is to keep people focused. The single most precious commodity we have in the world today, in my mind, is attention. And anything I do that takes attention away from me or my message when I'm communicating works against me. So if I'm using too many filler words mm -hmm. so that you begin noticing them, then I need to dial that down. And there's some techniques you can use to dial them down. So I would agree with you. It's not about elimination. It's about making sure that they're not distracting. Hmm. Uh, and sometimes it may not even necessarily be a filler word, but it may just be some type of go-to word or phrase yeah, that phrase, you yes, say yes. regularly that you may not even be aware of. I was, for the longest time, I was a basically person. I would say basically a lot. Now, the, the words that, the repetitive words that people say that uh, I do advise people to eliminate are words of hesitation or hedging, kind of, sort of, I think, maybe. Those words actually not only are distracting because you repeat them so much, but they actually work against your credibility. So if I say something like, I kind of think we should do this, mm. that sounds very different than we should do this. So I do encourage people to eliminate as best they can words of hesitation.
Uh, I want to talk about another scenario or two scenarios that speakers may find themselves in. One being, let's say you, you finish the presentation and again, depending on the context, how you're presenting, let's say you want to do a live Q&A, which is a tightrope walk. And some speakers love the idea. Some speakers uh, hate the idea. So whenever you are, as a speaker, sharing the power of the room with a stranger in an audience in a group setting, what are some tips, tricks, tactics, things do, don't do to make sure that we are doing a, a Q&A effectively and, and it doesn't become something that's completely derailed. I have so much I can say, so let me make it really clear and concise. I think Q&A is really important. It's where you go from monologue to dialogue and you really understand where your audience is relative to your material. But it also opens yourself up to a lot of spontaneity. You don't know what the questions will be. You don't know if you know the answers to the questions. And by the way, if you don't know the answer to the question, say, I don't know. And then immediately follow it up with how you will find out and get back to the person. It is unrealistic for audiences to expect you to know everything. And we can gain comfort, comfort from knowing that we can say, I don't know. So here's what I recommend. Before you ever get on the stage and you know you're taking Q&A, think about potential questions you might get asked. Not so you can memorize your answers, just so that you're not surprised. Just like an athlete who would do a bunch of drills for different scenarios they might find themselves in, it makes sense to think about questions you'd be asked. In fact, you can use generative AI to help you craft questions you might be asked. So you can go to ChatGPT or Bard and say, I'm giving a presentation on X, what are three potential questions? Just so you can see what they're like. When you call for questions, I am a huge fan of setting a boundary. So instead of saying, are there any questions, which in essence opens you up for any question, you can say things like, I'd love to take your questions about, and then you define the boundary that you want to discuss. So you might say, I'd like to take the questions about the motivational sequence I just discussed. So if somebody asks a question that's not about that motivational sequence, you have cover to say, Thank you for that question. Right now, I want to cover those related to this topic. If I have time, I can come back to that later. That may or may not be appropriate. I mean, if the big boss who's writing you the check asks a question, you should probably answer it. But if you don't set a boundary, you're obligated to answer the question. When the question comes in, wait. A lot of us, once we think we know the answer or we think we know the question, we jump in. Wait till the question is complete verify that you understood the question by paraphrasing it. And I don't mean repeat word for word, but you might just pull out a key concept. You might say cost, that's something that, is, so you highlight it was about cost. So we set a boundary, we paraphrase. When we answer the question, we answer it to the entire room. Many people will just answer to the person who asked the question. You need to connect with everyone. And then when you're done answering, come back to the person who asked the question. Two last things I'll share, pet peeves I have, and then I'll, I'll stop talking. When a question comes in, avoid saying great question or good question. Many people as a nervous habit or to buy themselves time will say good question, great question. Not every question is a good question. And if you say that to every question, you've devalued it. Hmm. I'd rather you paraphrase or pause or ask a clarifying question to buy yourself more time. And then finally, when you are done with Q&A, you must wrap up. So many people just say thank you and then walk off the stage. You never know if the last question you answered was a good question for you, nor do you know if your answer will be a good one. You should always end with gratitude and a very brief summary of the key point of your presentation before you're done. I'm sorry I went so long-winded on that answer. I have so much to say about Q&A, but there are many things you can do to prepare.
I've got some follow-up questions so we can keep this train running. So uh, what do you do like when you are, you're trying to gauge, uh, you, again, when you call on someone, you have no idea what they're going to say. And are they going to give a statement? Are they going to ask a question? Is this going to be controversial? Is this going to stir right. up some type of issue? Uh, so how are you kind of reading people to determine whether or not, I think I'm safe to call on that person, but I think it'd be a little risky to call on that person. And even in those situations where you, you see someone who's raising their hand and it almost feels aggressive, confrontational, and you're going like, I see your hand, but I'm not going to call on you. Like, how do you, how do you deal with those situations? So I, I'm, I'm going to challenge your premise. I think your job as a speaker is, is to allow others to interact with you, even if they appear that they might be hostile. So I've got one, I, I think the person who's like aggressively raising their hand, yeah. you might call on them and you might call on them because they have passion and interest in your topic versus the person who doesn't answer, ask a question. Similarly, sometimes what you see is not always what you get. You know, the person who's subtly asking the raising their hand might have a doozy of a question. So the assumption is that what we see always is going to correlate to the quality or type of question. I'm not sure that's true. It certainly hasn't been in my, my experience. Um, but I, I would say, you know, if people have questions, take them. You have to be comfortable taking in the question, though. So if somebody asks a hostile question, you should validate their passion for the topic. Say, hey, I hear you're passionate. And I think we agree on this, right? You find, look for areas of agreement, even if somebody's challenging you. Um, so, so don't label their emotion if they come with emotion, because you might get it wrong. You might say, you sound frustrated. They're like, I'm not frustrated. I'm angry. And that's, you're not in a good place there, but you can say, I hear you've got some passion there. Yeah. So um, acknowledge the emotion, try to find areas of common ground and, and dovetail off of that. Similarly, you can reframe a question to make it a little easier for you to answer. Now I'm not saying be a politician and answer the question you wanted to get versus the one you did get. But imagine you're selling something and somebody raises their hand and says, why do you cost so much? That's a tough question to answer. You don't want to say, so you're asking why we're so expensive, right? You don't want to reinforce that. But what you might say is the value of our product is, do you see what I just did there? Somebody asked a question about price. I'm now answering a question about value, which I feel more comfortable with. And at the end of my answer, I'll say, and because of the value we provide, we charge the price we do. So I answer their question, but I reframe it slightly to be a little softer and easier for me. That takes talent. That might not always be advisable, but you can certainly do it. What about when people are, they raise their hand, they, they are well-meaning, well-intentioned, and they got to tell you, like, I got to tell you my long backstory. And it's just kind of this rambling, meandering all over the place. I'm not really sure what the question is within this, or I just wanted yeah. to share my own experience, or you talked about this earlier, <laughs> and here's how it kind of stood out to me, but I don't really know what I want to say here. Right, right. And now I'm nervous in front of all these people. How do you help kind of consolidate down and summarize? Okay, yeah. if I'm hearing you correctly, here's what you're ultimately asking. Yeah. So I believe very strongly in paraphrasing. And to me, paraphrasing is a listening skill. I am listening to you very carefully to really understand the gist or core of what you're saying. So I'm asking myself, what's the bottom line of what this person is saying? And I might even interrupt them and say, so cost is really something that's important, even though they've been meandering around lots of different things. Cost is one thing they brought up. And I'm going to craft a question for them. So uh, you might be rambling and rambling. And I say, you know, cost is really important. And I'm often asked, how are we going to cover the cost of this initial plan? 
So I just created a question for you. Often the audience member is relieved, right? They're yeah. like, oh, finally, that's yes, that's what I wanted. Uh, if they're not, and that's not what you want, they wanted, go ahead and answer the question. And then you have the choice to come back and say, was there another question there? Mm-hmm. But you often have to interrupt. And I believe the, the most polite way to interrupt is through paraphrasing. Mm. Uh, all right, let's shift gears one other time here. Uh, one other situation that speakers may run into is you finish your presentation, however many people are in the audience. And afterwards, a lot of times there are audience members who want to come and talk to you. And it may be, uh, you know, a couple of a line of people that want to talk to you. It may be uh, a group of people that just kind of gathers around you. Again, it kind of depends on the, the context and the situation. But it's one thing where speakers are standing on stage and I know my 60 minute keynote of exactly what I'm going to say. And it feels very polished. And then I get into that type of setting where I'm interacting with a group and people assume like, Oh, I just saw you. You're the life of the party. And maybe for a lot of speakers, they're actually very introverted. And so you get them off stage and they're just kind of, they're almost awkward just socially to be around. So how can speakers best handle, nurture those type of environments where everybody wants to talk to them. They're kind of the star of the show for that moment. Uh, people want to engage with them and speakers may or may not ultimately be prepared with, it's not like they have some speech to say to all these people that then yeah. gather around and just listen to their speech. Well, what tips or, or strategies would you give for us uh, in those environments? Yeah. So I see this as a version of small talk chit chat. And, and I spend a whole chapter in the new book talking about that. And it's one of the bigger challenges people face. A couple guiding principles for these types of conversations. First, uh, there's a there's a wonderful um, uh, person named Rachel Greenwald. She's she's fascinating. She's an academic and a professional matchmaker, and she has this wonderful saying: "Your job in small talk is to be interested, not interesting." And what that really means is in these circumstances, ask questions, get others talking. That's a great way to learn. And it's a great way to get the spotlight off of you. So if you're a speaker, you just come off the stage and somebody starts, uh, you know, people come at you and they start talking. You can say, I'd love to know what you found resonated most from what I said, or how can you apply some of the things that I just talked about to your life? Get other people talking. One, it's easier on you and then you can comment on it. And two, they, that's part of why they want to connect with you. They, they want to have an experience over your content. And if you can help guide them to that, that's really important. The second is the way you envision these things. Many of us put a lot of pressure on ourselves to say something that's just really meaningful and impactful in these types of circumstances. And I think that's the wrong model. That's almost the, the small talk as tennis match, um, mentality where in tennis i, I want to get my 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 ball over the line i want uh, over the net i want to get my idea to you and i want it to be a real good one i want it to score i want it to land i think that's the wrong mentality for these circumstances i don't know about you but growing up we used to play this game called hacky sack it was mm-hmm. a little beanbag ball yeah. and you, the whole goal is you just want to kick it and keep it off the ground and the way you're successful is you set up the other person so they can easily kick it back to you that's the vision I think we should have for this small talk where your job is to send something to the other person, they receive it, and then they send something back to you and it keeps it moving. It's when we really try to get a zinger or really land something that we get into trouble. So I think how we frame it and our actions in it matter. So ask questions about the relevance of your content. Remind yourself your job is to get others speaking and keep the conversation going. Matt, I know we've covered a lot of ground here and I know that you have a a lot more content material that you can share. You have a a new book out now called Think Faster, Talk Smarter, as well as the podcast. Tell us about the book. Tell us about the podcast and where can we find those? 
Thank you so much for this conversation and for the opportunity. Uh, you can find the podcast Think Fast, Talk Smart anywhere you get your podcasts. The book is called Think Faster, Talk Smarter. You can see I'm not very creative with names. It's all about how to be better speaking spontaneously in the moment. Search out mattabrahams.com. Lots of resources there, not just about the book, about lots of things communication centric. And you can always connect with me on LinkedIn. Thanks again for the conversation. Thanks, Matt. We appreciate the time. Hi, friend. Are you ready to get serious about taking your speaking business to the next level? Maybe you are someone who is looking for ways to book more paid gigs, or maybe you're trying to figure out all the different things that go into building a successful speaking business. Or perhaps you are an experienced speaker who wants to scale your speaking business to multiple six figures. If that's you, I'd encourage you to visit thespeakerlab.com slash call. Again, thespeakerlab.com slash call and book a free, no obligation call with our team. And if you're not quite ready to take that leap, I don't want you to hesitate and check out all the free resources that we have available to you on our website, including this podcast. So head over to thespeakerlab.com. Again, thespeakerlab.com. Find hundreds of blog posts, how-to guides, podcast episodes, email scripts, proposal templates, and so much more. Finally, I got a big favor. I would love for you to leave us a rating or review for this podcast. We read every single one, and it also helps other speakers find valuable free resources that they can use to build their own speaking careers. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.